Certainly for the first 10 years, I felt that a leader needed to be superhuman. A leader needed to be impervious, to lead from the front, to continue to create a blindingly optimistic view of the future, to encourage and engage a workforce. Over time, and I suspect that I've become more experienced as a leader and maybe more confident in my own faults, I think being yourself as a leader, it's okay to be flawed. You know, it's only, it's only bad if you're flawed and you don't recognize it. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Simon Price, our guest on today's podcast, has held senior leadership positions across a range of organizations, and now as the CEO of Ultra Electronics, a British company that develops technology for the defense and security industries, he's overseeing a major corporate transformation that aims to position Ultra for future growth. Today, he talks with Tanuja Randery, a partner in our transformation practice who's based in London, about his organization's approach to innovation and how Ultra is building an adaptable workforce. This is the first in a series of discussions we'll be sharing between McKinsey experts and the CEOs of enterprises in the advanced industrial and technology sectors about how they create sustainable growth to outperform their competitors. Tanusha, over to you. Thank you, Sean, for introducing us. Uh, Simon, I'm really looking forward to learning more about your personal journey and your vision for Ultra. So thank you for the time. You've had quite a global career in aviation and engineering, both as CEO of BB Aviation and then prior to that with GKN and Elvis. What have been the biggest contributors to your success and what drew you to Ultra? Well, thanks, Tanusha. And, and those are interesting questions, which had I been able to answer at the age of 20, would probably have made my career a smoother journey. You know, I do have an unusual background. Uh, I actually have a degree in food sciences and agriculture. I'm a trained accountant. I was an investment banker in London and New York for nearly 12 years before getting into industry. And I've actually spent most of my life in engineering businesses, and I'm not an engineer. I, I think it is not being an expert, but having experience. I've never believed that I've been able to engineer anything better than any of the engineers that I've worked with. And therefore, engaging with those engineers to help develop the right solutions for customers, it's not something I can do for them. So I have to spend my time facilitating and creating an environment in which in which engineers who don't always think about their customers, they usually think about the problems they're solving first and then their customers later down uh, the road. And not being an expert, but having experience has helped me do that, I think. I love that, Simon. It's not being an expert, but having experience. And I think particularly as CEO, right, of a business, it's so important what you say about orchestration uh, of the team. You know, we've done some fairly extensive research around growth in particular. And what we found is that companies that grew faster than their peers and were more profitable at the end of 10-year periods, uh, what we call growth outperformers, have achieved like five times the TRS versus their peers. And they tend to operate in a few different spaces in order to get there, right? So whether that be improving the core business, you know, entering new geographies, entering adjacencies, changing business models, et cetera. And looking at the three-year trend at Ultra in terms of your organic 
growth in particular. And I would say you are clearly a growth outperformer. So I was very keen to understand as you talk about what you've launched and put in place, what has been the contributing factor to your growth? So, so firstly, I'm not a growth outperformer. Let's be clear about that. I have been fortunate enough to work for people and in organizations where the talent of those people and their understanding of what they do and how they do it has driven the growth, not me. All I've done is given them the freedom to understand what they're good at and to take barriers down for them to allow them to be good at what they're good at. And I think growth for me is, is always about taking managed risk in areas that you are truly experts and you really understand and are competitive. I mean, it's no more complicated than the much-used Warren Buffett analogy of castles and moats. You need to understand how high your castle walls are and how wide your moat is because that tells you your strength as a business. What are you good at? It's quite important not to believe your own BS in all of this. It's quite important to look at external verification and data to support the internal uh, assumptions that you're making because sometimes those assumptions are flawed. Also, in a world that's changing as quickly as this world is changing, something that was correct two years ago may no longer be correct because, yeah. you know, the world has moved at such pace that the old plan, do, check, act cycle is down to days. It's not down to years. So I think encouraging and, and actually driving an organization to, to understand its customer is key. Uh, and what customers need and how the customers' needs are evolving. It's amazing to me how infrequently certain types of organizations actually go ask their customers what they want. They sort of assume they know better. And, and you know, we're a very engineering-heavy organization. Engineers are probably almost the worst at that. But, you know, go ask your customer what they want and be prepared to experiment. Take risks, make them small. You know, please don't bet the farm on a punt. But, you know, take risks at what you're good at, fail quickly, learn from it and reinvest, go again. It's very much dependent on the business, where you are in the cycle, the business model itself, the products and services provided, the physical geographies at BBA. A lot of our growth success was inorganic. It was all about buying and adding scale to a strong core. Ultra is not so much about buying. I think in the past, Ultra has been very acquisitive. That growth hasn't actually been particularly value creative and therefore not very successful. Uh, do I think we will be deploying capital? Absolutely, we will. But we'll be deploying it into areas that accelerate our ability to innovate and experiment. It'll be in areas where we can create more value than we're paying away in buying the asset. I think you know, I've been doing M&A for a long time now. And anybody that justifies M&A on the basis that an asset is cheap is doomed to failure. Markets are pretty good at valuing the future discounted cash flows that a business or an asset can generate. And they get the mass right 99 times out of 100. So unless you do something different to that asset once you've got it, something different with that business once you own it, you're almost certainly going to have paid away all the value in that asset in acquiring it in the first place. So for us, you know, growth at Ultra, unlike BBA, which is driven a lot by scale, where consistency of product and service was important, where there were massive benefits from uh, aggregated procurement. Here, 
it is it is much more about buying the right technologies to knit together to create cleverer solutions for our customers. It's about accelerating the pace which we, at which we can develop certain types of capabilities. It would take us five years to do it organically. There'll be businesses that we can buy which would allow us to sort of leapfrog in our own strategic execution a whole cycle of technology development. And Simon, I think picking up on the innovation point in particular, because you've invested in innovation and R&D at Ultra, mm-hmm. IP plays a very strong role for you. I also noticed the Ultra Labs growth accelerator. Right. Can you comment on that? I mean, it'd be really helpful to understand what you're doing with sure. the accelerator. Well, at Ultra, about sort of between 17 and 20% of revenue every year is in some form of development work. Sometimes it is funded development work for the customers. Sometimes it's money we're investing ourselves to develop capabilities to apply to customer solutions going forward. And Ultra's background, it's an aggregation of acquisitions, never really been integrated. In fact, the transformation we're going through at the moment, we're a year and a half into, is effectively integrating 30 years of acquisitions, 53 acquisitions over the period of a couple of years. And what we found is that... It's important to focus our investment in intellectual property and capability into the areas that we're good at. And we can see that there are certain capabilities and technologies that span our businesses. I'll give you an example. Everybody's talking about big data. Everybody's talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. We're no different. Uh, Ultra at its core takes data that sensors pick up, usually in very harsh environments where that data is very difficult to find, we turn that data into information and then we send it somewhere so that something or somebody can do something with it. We'll continue to improve the quality of the sensors that we manufacture, but where we'll spend most of our time is improving the data that those sensors produce and turning that more effectively and efficiently into information. Now, that's an issue that all of our businesses face. And therefore, you know, one of the reasons we've created Ultra Labs is to create a cross-business capability in certain core areas that are important to all of our businesses. So almost they're a center of expertise for certain types of capability and technology. It also stops us inventing different solutions for the same problems in four or five different places. So where we can create modular solutions, so modular machine learning algorithms. We'll try and do that centrally and then adapt it to a local customer need or situation. So that's one area that Ultra Labs is focused on. The second area that it focuses on is innovation. It owns our innovation process. So it's pulling together skills and capabilities from across the whole of the Ultra Group to work on unique problems that are either faced by a whole bunch of our customers or which are unusual, faced by a single customer, but where the broader capabilities of Ultra can help provide better solutions. So, and then thirdly, they're responsible for sort of sophisticated specialist engagement with forward-thinking institutions in our principal customers, and that's mainly the defence arena. So they, the 10, 15-year DARPA strategists uh, they're, they're engaging with those sorts of people to help us better understand what problems the customer's trying to solve for in 10 or 15 years' time. So those would be the three things that Ultra Labs is doing. It's a conscious effort to isolate 
a bunch of people and a bunch of money away from our strategic business units to sit them above the strategic business units to act as a service to those strategic business units in some of the capabilities that are owned there, but also to act across them to identify and solve problems that customers have that cross those SBUs. I think, Simon, it's a really phenomenal thing because what we have found in a bunch of business building initiatives that we've been involved in is that more than two thirds of them are not successful, primarily because, I mean, there are lots of different reasons, but one of them is <laughs> what you've just laid out is they haven't been specifically curved out with funding, right, and talent to go drive it. And often they've just been either killed by love, as we call it, from the mothership, right? And so they're just stifled. Or, to be honest, they've had to be funded from business units. And and then there's always this tension, core versus new. So, and if I may, just building on that, I mean, where Mm -hmm. does Ultra Growth Labs report well firstly it reports to me via our chief via our chief technology officer so so our chief technology officer who reports to me he owns ultra lab so it reports to him doesn't report to any of the business units it has its own budget a chunk of money that is is it to spend it's treated like a business unit it has very specific objectives each year it's got a five and a ten year plan that it's seeking to pursue. And it gets treated like a business unit in that it goes through the same quarterly operating reviews that business units do. So you have a set of objectives. What, what have you done? How have you done? What have you learned? What's going right? What's going wrong? What are you going to do differently next quarter? They can do some things the SPUs on their own would not do. And then, you know, having done a two-week sprint on a particular problem, if we see some commercial possibility as an outcome, then they'll hand it off to one of the SBUs, which is creating more business for those SBUs. So they're not an execution unit. But look, I absolutely understand the challenges that others have faced in setting up these units going forward. What we are not doing in Ultra Labs is creating some sort of ventures hothouse. Our Ultra Labs is there to, to support the Ultra strategy and more rapid execution of it and the SBUs as part of that. In a way, what you're talking about is almost reinventing your core. It's actually enhancing the core. It's making the, the core more effective and allowing the core to evolve rapidly and in the best way possible to continue to drive value creation for everybody. Once we defined what our core was, and that wasn't an easy process, but Ultra Labs is there to accelerate that and enhance that and to make sure that we're continuing to evolve to meet customer needs efficiently and rapidly. And building on that for a second, you talked about the journey you're into, the one, you know, one and a half years into a five year transformation. Could you shed some light, Simon, on A, what drove the one ultra transformation? in particular. And, you know, just having been through, I'm sure, many transformations in your career, you know, what are one of the things, one or two things that you felt worked well, have worked well, and actually, what would you maybe either enhance or change uh, about the program that you're on? I think Ultra is in a good place and has made more progress than I perhaps anticipated in its first year and a half. The Ultra Transformation journey is built on the experience of a lot of people in Ultra that have been through different transformations in different places. The most important thing to do is to understand the need for change up front and to understand it widely. You know, in Ultra, we spent 
we actually engaged with all of our stakeholders and, and asked them what they thought was good about Ultra and what they thought was bad about Ultra. And within that, there was some really good stuff, but there was some really quite worrying stuff. And that's probably what we've done more of at Ultra than I've done in previous change programs, is we've spent a bit more time understanding the environment and how stakeholders perceive what the organization is delivering for them before we decided what that change is going to look like. It's not the ultra exec team's, team's views. It's actually our stakeholders' view. And having understood that, it is easier to embed it in the organization. It's building a team as part of that. And so we actually used 150-odd of our senior leadership to help understand the need for change. So everybody got engaged with a particular customer set, spent some time with those stakeholders, defining what good set of outcomes for those stakeholders would look like and what a set of measures might be in four or five years' time that would say, if we delivered these things, if we hit these measures, we would have really happy stakeholders. That told us what sort of strategy we needed to follow, and then we were able to engage a wider audience, moving into execution phase, and then you know consolidating some of those gains. And we're right in the middle of execution now. Uh, and execution will extend for another couple of years here because uh, it's a fairly wide-ranging transformation. Most important, though, don't drive the change from, from the top. You cannot have a group of six people changing a whole organization. Everybody in it understands why we're needing to change and is given the freedom to facilitate a little bit of that change for themselves and to, to decide for themselves against that bigger vision, actually, what do I need to do differently? It's only when you get that grounds root engagement in transformation, I really think it, it's successful. You know, and my own personal experience, but also the experience of many transformations we've been involved in, there are two things that stick very much in my mind. One is line-led, so really line-led, uh, to your point of not top-down, although you set top-down aggressive goals, right, and vision. And then the other thing is owner's mindset. What role did growth play in the setting of the transformation, or how important was that to the uh, overall I, I, one I think we're journey. in the very fortunate situation where we can do this transformation, but not from a burning platform. You know, my first management jobs were in, in uh, engineering, manufacturing, tier one automotive businesses. That was all about just be more cost efficient, take heads out. You know, that's pretty horrible for the shop floor because there's no upside to them for it. Um, here, you know, we're in the fortunate position of having capabilities that if we applied them better, would allow us to grow much more rapidly. So when we're talking about transformation, fixing some of the basics, taking some of the inefficiencies out of the processes that we operate, is to free up resources and people to do the interesting stuff, the growth stuff. You know, for us, last year we grew five or 6% top line, our order book, is very strong. You know, most of the market is expecting us to do something similar in 2021 and even maybe in 2022. It's all about getting the organization fitter, stronger, better, more grounded to deliver that growth through better processes and the same people doing more interesting things. So there's something in it for everybody. And Simon, just on the process point, what were the most important processes or practices that helped you really boost on the growth equation? Uh, this is going to sound, this is going to sound strange. Um, they were actually our back <laughs> office processes. 
principally in finance and HR. And mm. because we're applications engineers, we're good problem solvers here. It was our administrative processes that were holding us back. You know, we were still signing 120 manual checks to pay people in one of our businesses three months ago. And then on the people front, which is particularly important for us, is to stop thinking about recruiting recruiting locally for a current role. Think about and create a set of processes that allow you to understand the capabilities you're going to need in five years' time and go recruit for those now and to develop them internally and apply them in the right place and bring on board people who aren't just going to work in one, on one program for the next 20 years in one location. We do need some of those people, but seed them with a different type of capability. Um, people that are learning, expanding, want to move, uh, are prepared to be multidisciplinary in the engineering space. Um, so I would say those are the two, yeah, people and people development, and then the administrative processes are the things that have helped us most. As you reflect uh, on what we've just been through this past year, and actually for a bit more time to come, probably, you know, what are one or two future trends that you believe will have the biggest impact on businesses? I don't think this pandemic has created new trends. I think it has accelerated a lot of the things that were already happening, not just in business, but in the world. What do I think is here to stay? What do I think will change? I do think ways of working have changed permanently. I think there will be a greater blending of remote and socially engaged working. I think people will begin to divide their tasks more between the administrative, the there's fact-based decision-making, the communication, the data gathering, all of that stuff can be done remotely. And then they will, they will have a separate set of working processes that they use for the collaboration, the innovation, the problem solving and the decision-making, which will require, will still require social interaction, but there will be less social interaction involved. The importance of social contact is higher to me than I thought it was. In the pandemic highlighted for me the importance of social, broader social chemistry in a team for that team to be effective. What I've noticed, uh, particularly for me and my own uh, senior leadership team here, is at the outset, because we've got so much social capital invested in that team, we've been working together for most of us for a couple of years now, we know what everybody's thinking. You can be intuitive around questions and decision makings. And as a leader of that team, you, you know when to, to pull and to tweak and to nudge and to, uh, and to perhaps elicit response. That erodes over time and it erodes, it erodes interestingly after about four or five months. And then I think it becomes more and more difficult without physical interaction, actually even to do the day job, let alone the creative stuff uh, as well. So I think it definitely highlighted for me both the importance to me of social interaction and the effectiveness of a team in all its aspects of social interaction. As a critical industry, we are required and have been required throughout the pandemic to do whatever it takes to continue to deliver to our critical customers. And that has meant that probably more of our folk have been in the office and my team in the office or at least in the office some of the time in order to ensure that we're satisfying the customer's needs with delivering our solutions to the customers on time and to cost. 
But we, we have actually shifted from supporting local government advice and guidance around avoiding coming to work unless it's necessary to mandating you have to come to work a couple of days a week because without that interaction, we were finding that we were losing productivity and we were just becoming less efficient, but there will be less social interaction involved than uh, there would have been five years ago. I think that has lots and lots of knock-on effects. The way we train people, how we engage leaders and what leaders are good at and what they think, that, that needs to evolve. I mean, um, managing a team that is remote three out of five days is a different skill set from managing a bunch of people in the office. You're going to need to have much more empathetic leaders. You're going to have to have leaders that are much more capable of creating teams within teams that are empowered to go away and do their thing always coming back to some sort of collaborative review of that decision. Is it a cool decision? That dispersed approach to leadership, I, th I think, will be increasingly important. I think the other thing that has changed permanently is the whole attitude and the way the retail consumer buys. And therefore, the science of selling, I think, you'll see continued acceleration of a much more scientific approach and data-based approach to to selling to all sorts of customers. And it will, I think, you know, it's in B2C already. It, it's, it's coming into B2B, but I, I, think, I think it's going to be here in spades. Yeah, no, Simon, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm curious, how did you keep um, spirits up while, you know, ensuring you're also protecting, obviously, employees who are coming in? I, th I think f a lot of it's about communication. I think I have definitely evolved or, or even learnt through this pandemic is the importance of open communication style. I mean, you have to tell people the truth. You've got to be realistic. They can see what's going on around them. You also have to be true to yourself and be empathetic. I mean, this is what's going on. This is why we have to do what we do. We're going to do everything we can to support you both at home and at work to enable us to do what we're obligated to do. I've been in senior leadership roles now for nearly 20 years. So I'm, I am closer to the end of my leadership career than I am to the beginning. But, you know, certainly for the first 10 years, I, I felt that a, a leader needed to be superhuman. A leader needed to be impervious, to lead from the front, to continue to create a blindingly optimistic view of the future, to encourage and engage a workforce. Over time, and I suspect that I've become more experienced as a leader and maybe more confident in my own faults, I think being yourself as a leader, it's okay to be flawed. You know, it's only, it's only bad if you're flawed and you don't recognize it. Yeah, acknowledging your flaws, uh, sharing them with your people, being empathetic and understanding that, you know, the Business is not about making profit. Business is not about generating increases in share prices. Business is, is about delivering for all stakeholders. And you need to understand, therefore, what all stakeholders are seeking from the effective operation of your business. And that requires you, certainly for the employee group, who are probably the biggest or the second biggest and most important stakeholder we have, what's going on in, in their world and, and how you feel about their world and what you can do to make their world better. 
Simon, thank you. That's that's a perfect point to close. I've taken up loads of your time, but really appreciate it. Learned a lot, by the way, extremely insightful. So thank you again. And back to you, Sean. Tanuja, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We hope all of our listeners enjoyed the discussion as well. You can find the transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR for Inside the Strategy Room, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com or follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page there. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.